I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Fernand Amandi. He's a political operative based in Miami, Florida. Welcome, Fernand. It's a pleasure to be here, Alex. Thanks for having me. Fernand, I wanted to give our listeners a bird's eye view of Florida political history just within the last decade or so, because it really goes back to 2010 and the inability to have a strong Democratic nominee, but ultimately the inability of folks to coalesce around the candidate. We forget that Marco Rubio was considered in a really illegitimate and far-right extremist ignoramus in 2010 and somehow managed to get elected and then re-elected. But um, given your deep knowledge of Florida and political history there, how can we avert course in 2020? You know, basically take all the negativity that came out of 2010 onward and, uh, and move in a more constructive direction. Well, while 2010 was absolutely a, a, an important inflection point for Florida, uh, you can even go back to 2020, where really the scene of the crime nationally was Florida with the, of course, disputed Gore versus Bush presidential election, where it was the stopping of the recount in Florida by the Supreme Court, which ended up giving George W. Bush the election win. And really, ever since then, it's been a state that, while it has voted uh, almost even Stephen for Republicans and Democrats are close to it in these elections, it's been overwhelmingly run by the Republican Party. As you cite in 2010, one of the, the consequences of that election was you had in, at the time, Governor Charlie Crist, who was running as an independent, against Marco Rubio, he had an opportunity to really change the course of Florida history, perhaps even American history, had he been able to defeat Marco Rubio. His challenge there, though, was that you had a Democrat uh, who did not get out of the race and therefore split that anti-Rubio vote in the process that helped Rubio get over the finish line. But to your question, how can you deny a right-wing candidate Florida and its 29 electoral votes in a presidential election year? Well, I think the answer has been provided in the past by President Obama, who was the only Democrat to win really statewide in a presidential election year, can show that Florida can be won. And the way he did it was by engaging the state's diverse electorate early with a clear message and doing the necessary work on the ground, whether that was going after the state's Hispanic vote, the state's African-American vote, and of course, the white Anglo vote, which still makes up the vast majority of the voters in Florida, there is a way to get that done. And if anything, what we're seeing now is, given Donald Trump's disastrous mismanagement of the coronavirus and how you see that echoed in the similarly disastrous response by the governor of Florida, the hand-picked by Trump Republican, Ron DeSantis, it's really putting his chances of carrying Florida in jeopardy. And the Republican numbers are underwater in most of the key battlegrounds. And Florida is always, like you say, hotly and quite evenly contested. Um, to, to put it in serious contention and for, for Biden to win it, um, is there anything he has to do that he's not doing now or just keep doing what he's doing? Well, whatever he's doing is working brilliantly because he has only managed to increase his degree of support uh, here over the last several months. Uh, and really, it's been without the benefit of being able to have any kind of an actual on-the-ground uh, campaign or enterprise. And I think this election, as much is about 
sure, the alternative that Joe Biden provides, but also a referendum on this disastrous four years that has been led by President Trump. And Florida is paying an extraordinary price right now. Uh, we are, as of the time you and I are having this conversation, regarded as the epicenter for the planet for the coronavirus. Um, if you were to look at Florida's numbers just by itself, uh, we're averaging about 11,000 new cases uh, every day this week. That in and of itself would be the fourth most in the world if Florida were its own country. And we're going to see over the next coming days, unfortunately, an increase in those cases and an increase in the number of deaths. So I think that more than anything else, it's what's really helping to make the case to those that may have supported President Trump or might have been uh, on his side last time around that are having doubts why uh, we can't another four to four more years. And we know, Alex, that if Florida's 29 electoral votes don't go to President Trump, it's almost mathematically impossible for him to get that electoral college majority. Right. It's impossible. And it's another show of strength for that Biden ticket uh, because Trump has re-registered and is now technically a Floridian in voting this cycle. Um, so it will be doubly difficult for Trump to swallow losing the election and losing Florida. Um, in making a VP selection, do you think that there is a VP candidate who would resonate best for Floridians? Well, I mean, just given the, the options that are currently being uh, talked about, um, whether it be through the media or in the pundits, th there does seem to be one for Floridians to your question that does stand out. And that, of course, is the congresswoman from Florida, Val Demings, who uh, is, is, a, is a superstar here in this state, very well regarded on the national scene. And I think would would not only appeal very strongly to Democrats across the state and base voters, but of course, African-Americans and minorities as well. So she's one I think a lot of Floridians are looking at with um, a rooting interest. And outside of the Congresswoman, do you generally take the point of view that the candidates who are most discussed, namely Warren and Harris, also now Duckworth, that any one of them would be perfectly positioned to help Biden win your 29 electoral votes. I mean, I think that's right. Uh, first, given the, what would be the historic nature of this election, I mean, it would be the second woman uh, VP pick uh, on the Democratic side. Of course, Geraldine Ferraro was the first, it'd potentially be the first uh, female vice president of the United States. I think that in and of itself is going to have an appeal. But, but fundamentally, uh, you also kind of go by the, Hippocratic oath of do no harm with the VP selection. I'm not, I don't think any of those choices would do any harm. It still re remains, though, a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but ultimately a referendum on Donald Trump. Do the people of Florida and the people of the United States, for that matter, want another four years of what we've seen these past four years? And right. I think that's going to be in the mind of voters. And, and do they want, after 2020, another four years of DeSantis? Um, and you said when I asked you how you were lucky to be alive in Trump's America in Florida's uh, DeSantis's Florida, um, you know, there was also um, the primary between Gillum and um, Gwen Graham. And, you know, the, the, if you want to say safe or more resonating, according to recent Florida political history, would have been. Gwen Graham more in the mold of her father, Bob, or a Christie, or a Jeb Bush in um, just kind of both 
political demeanor and uh, centrist overtones and undertones. Um, do you think when Graham, if she stays healthy, I know she had had a health scare at one point, would do really formidable battle against uh, DeSantis in 2022? Well, I mean, yes, but I, I also think any Democrat is going to be able to, to bring a, a hell of a fight to DeSantis. Um, all we need to do is look at his own numbers. You know, prior to this pandemic, he was actually one of the more popular governors in the entire country, certainly at the top of the most popular Republican governors list. But that has absolutely plummeted when people have now seen this epic lethal mismanagement that has resulted in, again, over, almost 5,000 deaths and over 350,000 cases alone in the state of Florida. Uh, when he was one of the ones that was delaying the idea of shutting down the state, still to this day has not issued a mandatory statewide order for masks and is delaying the idea of a stay-at-home order in spite of the fact that the, the cases are worse now than they were in March and in April. But I think you're going to see a robust competition, a robust primary amongst the Democrats, because in seeing a weakened DeSantis, who not only is going to be seeking reelection, he's also trying to lay the groundwork for his own presidential campaign of 2024, which is very much uh, actively and in place. It's going to set for an interesting backdrop in 2022 when, when the election. Fernand, when I referred to Rubio as an ignoramus, I mean, it's, it's the kind of tweets and comments he's made. Uh, like there's no scientific evidence that going to Disney or going into a restaurant is going to is going to uh, cause spikes. You know, that, that that's any reason um, to mitigate a pandemic. I mean, it's it's idiocy. And DeSantis um, has sort of heeded the same kind of idiocy. I'm wondering in your polling work and um, tapping into the sensibility of, of the of the Floridian who's not an avowed or avid Democrat or Republican uh, might have crossed over to vote for Bob Graham and Jeb Bush and voted for Gore and then voted, you know, possibly for Obama and then Trump or possibly for Obama and then Clinton. You know, if you get in the minds of those folks uh, who are not avid partisans, are are they aware of this kind of race to the bottom of idiocy when it comes to Rubio and DeSantis? I mean, Rubio was reelected um, after a rather embarrassing presidential campaign, but there's sort of a new profoundness to the idiocy in that it's causing people's deaths. Well, and unfortunately, you can't always count on Florida voters to get it right. This is a state that uh, elected and reelected Rick Scott, and, and as you did, elected and reelected Marco Rubio. But again, I, I, I think if the scourge of Trumpism is defeated convincingly, as I hope and expect it to happen this November, it is going to be impossible for people like Marco Rubio, for Ron DeSantis to wash away the stain or the taint of having been associated not only with Trump, but the anti-science and frankly anti-American postures that Trump has taken. And they have taken as tacit complicit supporters of him. So just like I think Ron DeSantis is going to expect a hell of a challenge in 2022, Marco Rubio will as well, because he's up on the ballot in 2022. And that's if he even decides to run for re-election. You may recall last time around in 2016, he uh, indicated he was not going to, and only at the last minute decided to get back in that race. 
But uh, I, I don't think Rubio is long for the Senate uh, past 2022. But, Fernand, do you think that older voters who might traditionally be more conservative are waking up to the consequence of, of Trump? Um, folks who might have even supported him for election in initially considered re-election with the economy moving in the right direction for people who you know, have stock options. Um, do, you, do you think that the, the Biden numbers are soft or do you think that those numbers showing older voters um, more and more securely in the Biden column reflects that there are some conservative, normally Republican voting folks who uh, are going to see the death and destruction caused by, by the malignant response and corruption and vote for a Democrat, maybe for the first time in their lives? Well, sadly and tragically, we have an increasing problem here in Florida where many of those older voters are not waking up at all and they're paying with their own lives right. for this mismanagement. So I think as the situation exacerbates, as the numbers continue to mount and there seems to continue to be no plan whatsoever to not only bend the curve, but to combat the expansion of coronavirus, yes, I think you're going to see older voters, as the polls already are starting to indicate, abandon the Republican Party and many of the office holders under the Republican brand in droves. How much specific analysis have you done looking at those voters who voted, folks who voted for Trump or who, who were dissuaded by a lot of tactics to stay home in 2016? And how encouraged are you by 2018 um, and by the anecdotal evidence and the data that you assemble that uh, those, those older voters who are alive um, are um, not, not going to be as vulnerable to um, some of the typical culture war you know, battle cry that, that you'll get from Republicans? Well, let's just look at three metrics for starters. Looking at the 2016 result in Florida where Trump wins the state by a little over 100,000 votes. It wasn't a dominating win. It was a very close win, even by Florida standards. And then two years later, to your point, 2018, while it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison because they're different electorates in an off-year electorate versus a presidential electorate, DeSantis really only manages to win the state um, by about 25,000 votes. So already there, you saw a little bit of an erosion. When you couple that with the third metric, Alexander, which is the consensus average of not just more than one, I'm talking about dozens of polls that right now show Joe Biden ahead in Florida with a lead of anywhere between five and nine points. Uh, I think it does speak to the fact that many older voters have reevaluated that may have voted for Trump in 16 and even DeSantis in 18 and saying, I'm not making this mistake again. So I think based on those metrics, um, it's good. It's a good thing. And it's a very positive development. I, I will add one thing, though, that the, the questions about the polls aren't really what keeps me up at night and has me most concerned. Uh, and maybe it's my own feelings as a pollster, I, I trust absolutely in what the polls are reflecting now, and certainly more than the average of polls. What keeps me up and what I'm absolutely concerned about, and I think we as a country, and especially those in Florida, need to be especially concerned about, is the integrity of the election. We know that there are mass efforts right now to suppress the vote, 
We saw a Supreme Court decision yesterday which said that felons who had their voting rights restored uh, have to pay now a tax uh, in order to get that voting right. And, and that was a, a vote in the court, by the way, that broke down along ideological and partisan lines. The takeaway basically being, uh, if you're poor, you can't vote. You don't have the right to vote despite the fact that your rights have been restored. So that coupled with obviously the active measures we see by foreign uh, influences and others is what keeps me really concerned because I'm not a hundred percent sure I can put my hand in the fire and say, no matter what, we're going to have a clean election is going to represent the intent of what the voters of Florida and the country want. And that's terrifying. It is terrifying. The only hope we have is that states are administering the ballot in a way that is maybe overall going to reflect um, the 50 states and not, uh, you know, if we had a federal controlled election process that could be um, considerably worse in tainting the results. Um, so we, we, we do hope, and we've done a lot of podcasts on this subject of ensuring access to the ballot, uh, early voting, mail voting, and um, making sure that secretaries of state and, and all 50 states are comporting themselves according to the, the rule of law. But so you're not, you really are not at all concerned that the polls are, are misleading to the point of, you know, such an extreme that has been suggested Trump voters, or at least the loyal Trump voters who want to denigrate anything that's not, you know, Trump or QAnon, that they're not picking up the call and answering pollsters' questions or, you know, taking internet surveys, that there's been some thinking that um, there's perhaps a, just a, a, a uh, on the part of Trump voters, an unwillingness to answer those questions, um, and therefore the numbers are not adding up. You know, I, I would buy that more than the alternative theory that folks are lying. I don't think the folks who are going to vote for Trump are lying about voting for Trump anymore. If, if they're telling no, them, I mean, I, but what about the yeah. former idea that they're just not at being counted in polls because they're not willing to answer polls? I, 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 I haven't personally, in all of the studies we've conducted, I haven't seen anything to suggest that. And I think it bears out in what the other pollsters are doing as well. And remember, the beauty of polling is it's not uh, an inexact science in the sense that you can't measure and compare and contrast. We have now had, since that 2016 election, hundreds of contests around the country where the polling has also been there during and right up until the election. And then you can compare their polling uh, forecast to the election results themselves. And we haven't seen that effect that anyone talks out. And maybe I'm an outlier, but I'm also one that doesn't believe that the polls in 2016 were wrong. I think most of those polls going into that final weekend, the reputable ones, and more than one of them, showed that Hillary Clinton was going to win anywhere between 2 and 4% uh, of the election nationally. And when you factor in the margin of error, that's almost exactly what happened. To the extent that there were some flaws was in the state, individual state polls, because there wasn't a lot of them done and a lot of them weren't done at the very end. So I don't have any concerns at all about the polls. My concerns about the integrity of what happens when people go vote. And if we can 100% rely on the fact that what a person's vote is cast when fully tabulated will represent the intent of the electorate. 
Fernand, let me ask you this. There are two potential watersheds still left in the trajectory of this campaign. Uh, one is the conventions and VP selection. We've talked about that a little bit. I don't think that the virtual conventions are really going to elicit a bounce from either candidate. Um, you know, it, I think that that uh, even in, in the mainstream media, that's that's largely not reflecting the will of the people. It's more of a, a media concoction um, after each convention to say, you know, this ticket got a bump, this ticket then got a subsequent bump, uh, whose bump was bigger. I think that's, that's largely, um, you know, that's, that's, um, superfluous at this point. Um, but the other potential moment for a swing in public opinion is the debates. I mean, do you see it that way as those being the next and maybe the only other junctures uh, in which there could be some kind of decisive movement? I mean, look, if, if this were a traditional campaign with two traditional candidates, you could, you could look at that and say so. But, you know, I'm still of the opinion that the debates may not even happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so sure that it will even matter if they do happen. And I think one has to look at other variables as the more troubling ones. Uh, which is an, an administration that seems completely untethered from the rule of law that is is facing the possibility of an indictment of many members of this administration should they lose the election in November, what they are capable of doing in terms of an action. I also think the much bigger variable is the, the specter of what uh, foreign actors could do in October and in September and in the balance of time between now and the election, just like we saw transpire four years ago. So I, I would look at those two factors as being much more uh, concerning and troubling than the debates, or as you said, conventions that probably this year will will be much significantly less than what they were in, in years past. And those variables, those factors that there are those we, we can't really assess, I think the COVID crisis is going to be unrelenting. And, and the economic hardship has not been experienced in some people's pockets. It's been experienced in most of our pockets, but uh, I don't see any recovery from COVID. You're really alluding to the potential for malfeasance to um, corrupt the electoral process such that, you know, the, the election in maybe several different states is, uh, is tainted. Um, you know, that's, that's the nightmare you're fearing. Yeah, I mean, look, COVID, as you, I agree with you, COVID shows no signs of waning of anything. What's more scary is it's, it's getting worse, and it's getting worse with the prospect of fall and winter still before us. Uh, so, yeah, that's something that I think is only going to be exacerbated. But, but again, I go back to the factors that we have seen in this new normal where you have an unrestrained executive branch, where you have an unrestrained even to a certain extent, judiciary, where we've seen the court almost in lockstep play the ideological game in support of a lot of the decisions that a lot of folks feel are, are decided on the basis only of party line votes. Uh, and, and, the, and the specter of what foreign actors could do, whether it be Russia, whether it be even Saudi Arabia or China. We saw this week alone a massive Twitter hacking where the accounts of every single major Twitter a person ranging from Joe Biden to Elon Musk to Barack Obama were compromised 
you know, that's just a taste of what still could potentially be to come. And I think those are the types of things that can wreak havoc, not only on public confidence and public perception, but potentially on how people decide to vote. Right. Well, we'll have to ensure the integrity of, of the vote this, this fall and, and that um, Trump and uh, Barr, who have been certainly inclined to corrupt the rule of law, are not interfering with the process. We can, we can only hope that because of the federalist system um, that states will retain that independence and, and not be corruptible. Um, but in the meantime, I think you have been an advocate of uh, not just a Biden victory, but a huge Biden victory that is undeniable. And I'm sure you'll continue to tout that for now. Yeah, I mean, look, this is I don't try and look at it from a partisan lens. I try and look at it from a patriotic lens. I I think Trumpism is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the United States. Uh, And it is perverse as fascism or Nazism. And the only way we can uh, work to alleviate a lot of the damage we've seen is for there to be a robust rejection of Trumpism at the ballot box. As I say, it's not enough to just defeat Trumpism. It has to be routed and uh, removed, if you will, uh, yeah. so that we don't see the likes of this again in our beloved And, and if, if anything could give us hope for that precedent, besides just the vast mobilization, it's 2018, because there really was, if there had been Senate elections in every state in 2018, the complexion of that body would, would have been different. Um, and uh, and 2018's House results are a testament to that. Uh, Fernand Amandi, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Listen to uh, Fernand's podcast, Strange Days podcast. It's terrific. And uh, follow his work as a high-profile political operative in Florida. We'll be checking back in with you. Thank you, Fernand. Thank you so much. Stay safe.